0: How do you live in a world of lies? If you consider yourself to be a person of truth, a preserver of truth, perhaps even a preacher of truth, then how do you live in a world of lies? Perhaps you just want to plod along, keep your head down, keep going. But the lies, the deceit, the warlike words, they just keep coming. How do you live in such distress? How do you live in a world of lies? Lies tear all kinds of things apart, don't they? They tear apart reputations. They tear apart relationships. They tear apart republics. Sometimes the lies that we hear in this world make indirect contact with us. But sometimes they are a direct assault on the soul and on our character. We've all lied. And it's likely that we've all been lied about. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been lied about? Children, young people, maybe a sibling has lied about you. you. You know the famous words, he started it or he did it. Maybe a classmate accused you of cheating off of him when the truth was that he was cheating off of you. For the adults among us, maybe a, a coworker lied and placed the blame for an error or a failure on you. Maybe you suffered a demotion or dismissal. Maybe you've been slandered and a deceitful cloud of suspicion has been cast over you. Have you ever been lied about? What did you do? What did you do in the aftermath? Did you throw up your hands? Did you bite your tongue? Did you stoically go on? Did you bottle up the pain? Or did you boil over? What should you do when faced with lying lips? How do you live in a world that seems so agitated and angry? How do you live in a world that is at war with Christ and Christians? Maybe you've felt the scorn of the world. How do you live with a slander that Christians are backward and bigoted and behind in history when you're really trying to be a blessing to your neighbor? How does a Christian live in a world of lies? Well, that's the question that we have the privilege of pursuing an answer to this morning as we open up God's Word together. That's what Psalm 120 is all about. How does a Christian live in a world of lies, a world at war with the truth? Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 120. Turn in your copy of God's Word. You'll see that for yourself. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 516. Psalm 120 is a song for an Israelite pilgrim and a Christian pilgrim. It was, a first, it was first a song that an Israelite pilgrim sang on his way to worship at the temple of God. It's part of a group of songs known as the Psalms of Ascent, and I'll say more about that in just a few moments. But for now, follow along as I read Psalm 120. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord Yahweh, and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord Yahweh, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long I have had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak... They are for war. You'll notice just above the psalm that there's this ascription that is set off by the small but paradoxically capitalized typeface. You see it there. It says a song of ascents. Some translations might say a song of degrees or a song of going up. Here the ESV phrases translated a song of ascents. If you were to scan the next 15 psalms or so, you would see that phrase turn up over and over again. These Fifteen songs were likely sung by Israelite pilgrims on their way to the feasts in Jerusalem, prescribed in the law of Moses. So why a song of ascents? Well, uh, Jerusalem, it's set on something of a mountain. So whenever you go to Jerusalem, you're, you're going up. You are ascending. And so that's what's happening here. This was true physically, you're going up to Jerusalem. But we might even suggest that there are, are sp- spiritual connotations that can be applied as well. Going up to Jerusalem means going up to worship, going up to meet with God. It's also possible that these songs were sung by those Israelites who were coming up out of exile and returning to Jerusalem. But the most common view held by scholars is that these were songs of pilgrims on their way to the annual feasts uh, in Jerusalem. These were songs that pilgrims would sing along the way. And of course, uh, they're part of a larger collection of songs and prayers and poems of the ancient people of God that we know as the Book of Psalms. The Psalms were composed, collected, and arranged into five books, our Psalm 120 is inching its way toward the middle of the fifth book in the Psalter, in the Psalms. And these, this book, these books were carefully compiled to craft a single message about God's work in the world. They are connected in one way or another to each other and to the whole message of the Bible about what God is doing. They call God's people to pray and to praise. Over the next several weeks, we're going to begin to learn from uh, the first few psalms of this Psalms of Ascent. And we need to to recognize a couple of points of connection for us, for our lives as Christians. These ancient songs they're relevant to us. They are God's word to us. As 1 Peter reminds us, Christians are pilgrims, sojourners, exiles, who are plodding along. And one day, we too will reach the glorious house of God. By grace, we will reach the heavenly Jerusalem. We are marching on earth And we're making our way to heaven. We too are going up. We are going up to glory. We are looking forward to the day when we will see our Savior face to face. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. And on that day, we will leave behind this world of lies and war. And we will be with Jesus. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. These Psalms, they teach us how to make our pilgrimage with faith, hope, and love. These songs, they teach us how to be hearty, healthy, and heavenly-minded Christians during the course of our sojourn here on earth. They teach us how to be Christians that can endure sufferings and sorrows in this life while keeping our eyes on Jesus and our home in glory with Him as we sojourn. But what particular help does Psalm 120 give us? Well, Psalm 120 teaches us to pray, to pray for deliverance, to remember God's justice, And to be a lover of peace who longs for paradise. If you're looking for the message of Psalm 120 boiled down to a single sentence, then that would be it. In a world of lies, pray for deliverance. Remember God's justice. Long for peace or be a lover of peace and long for paradise. In verses 1 and 2, the psalmist, he prays for deliverance. In verses 3 and 4, he remembers God's justice. And in verses 5 to 7, we learn that the psalmist is a lover of peace who longs for paradise. This is how we pilgrim through a world often at war with the truth. And those three points, they're going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin to unpack the first point and lesson of the psalm. Pray for deliverance. Read verses 1 and 2 again there. In my distress... I called to the Lord Yahweh, and He answered me. Deliver me, O Lord Yahweh, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. These two verses are wonderfully crisp and clear, aren't they? What should a believer do when distressed by deceit? Call upon the Lord. Pray for deliverance. These two verses are striking, especially as they're set against the backdrop of the previous psalm, Psalm 119. As you may know, it's the longest psalm in all of the Psalter, and it is an extended meditation on the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's Word. So anyone immersed in God's truthfulness and trustworthiness is going to be distressed by deceit. It's so appropriate that Psalm 120 follows on the heels of 119. The first and best response when distressed by deceit is to pray. To cry out. To call aloud to the Lord. But notice in verse 1 that the psalmist appears to be looking back to the past. While in verse 2... He contemplates the painful present. In the past, the psalmist called. And in the past, the Lord answered. What help this is to us in the painful present. It is good to remember the faithfulness of God in the past. As we look to Him for help and deliverance in this painful present. Past answers to prayer. Past acts of deliverance encourage us to pray in the present. God has been faithful. And He will be again. So we give ourselves to prayer and as we pray we need to remember God's past faithfulness and we also need to remember who he is observe that the psalmist he doesn't just call out to anyone no he calls out to the Lord Yahweh that's actually what those letters the capital letters L-O-R-D stand for it Stand for Yahweh whatever you see that name in the Old Testament capitalized like that just read Yahweh that's who this is this is the self-disclosed and covenant name of God And this name reminds us that the psalmist is calling out to the God who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power. The psalmist is calling out to the God who formed the mighty mountains and the sea. The psalmist is calling out to the God who kept his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The psalmist is calling out to the God who heard the cries of his people who were enslaved in Egypt, and he delivered them. This is a God who hears and answers his people. This is who the psalmist is praying to. And crying out to the psalmist, he calls out to the God who has a history of hearing and acting to deliver his people. And indeed, God continued to do that. This is the God who heard the cries of a people enslaved by sin. And so he sent his very own son to deliver them. Dear Christian, cry out. Call aloud to your God. Get personal and get pushy with him. That's what the psalmist does. Do you see that there? psalmist, right there in verse 2, he prays, Deliver me. It's imperative. It's a bold request. It's almost a demand. And yet, it's also humble. In such a request, the psalmist recognizes that he cannot save himself. The psalmist has come to an end of himself. He sees no way out. And so he goes to the God who sees all things. He is in need of help. And only God can help him. Have you come to this realization? Have you come to see that you need divine help, help from God, deliverance from your sin. This psalm, this psalmist, he's facing enemies. He's facing, honestly, foes that do not fight fair. We, we don't really know who they are. The text doesn't tell us. Uh, maybe he's facing neighbors who are accusing him of various things, facing slander in various ways. We, we don't quite know. But the, the fact that this is very general allows any believer to really pick up this psalm and pray it facing their own circumstances. These foes, they lie and they deceive. They tarnish his reputation. They slander, they sully his good name. And what does he do? He prays. One Christian remarked, treachery filled his enemies and misery filled him. So he filled his heart and mouth with prayer. Often we think very little of lies until they're an assault on us. Distress. Distress ought to drive you to pray. If you are in distress... And you are not driven to prayer, then you are trusting in your own strength, a strength that is far inferior to the infinite God. Transfer your trust from yourself to Yahweh and begin with prayer. I wonder does any of this make you think, how did we get here? How did our world become so filled with lies? How did we become so deceivable? How did the world become so deceitful? To answer that, we really need to go back to the beginning, don't we? To when Satan, the father of lies, as Jesus called him, deceived the first man and the first woman. Remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? Shortly after God made the first man and the first woman, the serpent, Satan, he snuck into the garden and he slandered God. He slandered the name of God. He twisted God's word, and he tempted Adam and Eve to doubt God and his goodness. He lied and told them that they wouldn't die if they disobeyed God. But God had told them the exact opposite. If anyone has known the slander of lying lips and a deceitful tongue, it is God. Those lies about God, those lies about God's word, led to sin against God, war with God, and a world mired in misery. What a different world it would be if truth were only and always spoken. Now here is what is most astounding. After God was lied about and lied against, he purposed to defeat the devil's lies and to rescue those who believed them. Even to rescue people like you and me who have ourselves uttered lies and joined Satan's rebellion against God, against the God of grace and truth. In the garden, right after God was lied about and lied against, he promised to send his son to deliver his people from the destruction and judgment that their sins and lies deserve. But in order to deliver us, God's son, Jesus, was to be lied about and lied against. Remember, that's what we read about earlier in the service that Jonathan read for us from Mark's gospel. We read these words. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. None. For many bore false witness, lies, against him. But their testimony did not grieve. And some stood up and bore false witness against him. Through it all, do you remember what happened? Jesus, he made no answer. Could it be that in the garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prayed this psalm? Praying that God would deliver him from lying lips and a deceitful tongue? If not in Gethsemane, then certainly on his way to the feast... At Jerusalem. Jesus prayed this song. And we know that God heard and answered Jesus' prayer. We know because he raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Puts the world on notice. That lies and deceit will not have the last word. Lies and deceit may have put Jesus to death. But the answer of the God of truth. And grace. And love. Brought Jesus back to life. All deceit will one day die because Jesus was raised to life. When you are distressed by deceit, follow in the way of the psalmist and in the way of the Savior and pray for deliverance. It will come. Now the truth is, it may not come until after your death, but you can be sure that since Christ was raised from the grave, you will get up to. Lies will not have the last word. Brothers and sisters, this is counsel that you need. Christian this is counsel from God's word that you need. If you are found faithful to Christ, then it is almost certain that you will be lied about and lied against. Do you remember when Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, "A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master." Do you remember what Jesus said next? He reminded his disciples that he was lied about. He was called Beelzebel. And after that he said, "A disciple is not above his teacher? Nor above his servant, above his master. Then he said this If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? We should expect to be maligned like our master. And what will we do? Oh, we should pray like our master. We should pray like the psalmist. We should pray for deliverance. Spurgeon once said Silence to man and prayer to God are the best cures for the evil of slander. We should pray. And we should remember God's justice. Life in a world of lies demands that we remember God's justice. That's the second lesson of Psalm 120. Those distressed by deceit should pray for God to deliver them. And they should remember God's justice. Take a look at verses 3 and 4 again. Read Psalm 120 verses 3 and 4. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Deceit, it can be dizzying. It can lead to questioning, and that's what the psalmist does here. He asks, what judgment will be delivered to deceit? There's hope and there's faith in that question. Praying to the God who delivers has given him hope that injustice, the injustice done by lies and deceit, will be met with divine justice. And we know the psalmist is looking for justice to be done, By the very way he frames the question. It's not immediately apparent to us in our English translations. But the original Hebrew conveys a phrase that's found elsewhere in the Old Testament. There's a common Hebrew oath that goes something like, May God do so to you and more also. And that's the language that's underneath the psalmist's question. This kind of language that's found in places like Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings. It's it's sometimes an oath asking God for judgment on a party if that party is found unfaithful. And the aim of the oath here, phrased in the form of a question, is to bring the deceitful tongue, the unfaithful tongue, under God's judgment. The psalmist is asking, what kind of commitment to judgment does God have against you, O deceitful tongue? What will God do to you and more also, you deceitful tongue? And verse 4 is his answer. He says, well, let me tell you what kind of judgment God has committed to giving you You deceitful tongue. He says, God, the divine warrior, has sharpened his arrows and he's aimed them at you, deceitful tongue. God, the divine avenger, has the hottest fire prepared for you, you deceitful tongue. You are in the path of God's arrows and his fiery wrath. This maledictory oath attached to the righteous anger of the sovereign God is frightening. We know arrows, but a broom tree we're less familiar with. This is apparently a kind of large bush or small tree uh, that grows in Palestine, Arabia, and Egypt. This is apparently, uh, it's especially found around the Dead Sea. And its roots, scholars say, especially burn long and hot. So why does the psalmist choose these images to condemn the deceitful tongue? Why arrows and fire? Because the punishment must fit the crime. The psalmist chooses these images because this is what the tongue does. It pierces like an arrow. It sets all kinds of things on fire. Consider Psalm 64 verse 3 where we read that the wicked aim bitter words like arrows. The deceitful, they have fired their arrows. And the psalmist is remembering that God in His justice will fire His arrows too. And He will hit the mark. In his justice, God will repay injustice done by the same means. And fire? Well, as James chapter 3 verse 6 says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Yahweh, God, will fight fire with fire. The punishment will fit the crime. Only consider that the damage done by a finite man will be met with the unflinching justice of the infinite God. Sin and the slander of sin is first and foremost an assault on God. To tamper with truth is to tussle with God. He was the one who said, Thou shalt not bear false witness. There's comfort here in Psalm 120. God will judge His enemies and the enemies of truth. He will bring justice to injustice. It's a comfort to know that we don't have to take vengeance because God will. God will right all wrongs. We can entrust ourselves to God, to him who judges justly when we're lied about. There's comfort here. But there's also confrontation here. We have borne false witness. And don't lie to yourself thinking, I've never told a lie. Friends, there have been times where we've intentionally left a a wrong impression or left something out. That could be a form of of lying or deceiving. There have been times where we've exaggerated one thing to diminish another so as to hide the truth. We've likely misrepresented something or someone or we've simply flat and flatly contradicted the truth. We've, We've fired our arrows. We've set the truth on fire. And the Bible teaches us that God will judge it. That God will judge us in fact, the very end of the Bible tells us what God will do to those who do not repent of their lies. Revelation 21, eight says this, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Isn't it amazing that lies are at the end of that list? As if the list escalates, God will judge with fire the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Lies were one of the first assaults on the God of truth. And they arouse his righteous wrath. We are tempted to look at the justice of God in Psalm 120 and think of others. That's not wrong to a certain degree. But we have told our lies, Friends, in the course of our lives, we've lied. We've deceived. And therefore, we are in danger of facing God's infinite, eternal, and fiery wrath against our sin. God is just, and he will not let any sin go unpunished. And too often we forget that apart from Jesus, we are enemies of God and deserving of his arrows and fire. So what is our only hope in the face of God's fiery justice? Our only hope is to believe that God brought forward that final wrath against our sin in time and He poured it out upon His one and only Son on the cross. Our only hope is to believe that Jesus, who never spoke a word of lies, who was always free from deceit, that Jesus received our wrath, the wrath that our sins deserved in His body on the tree. Our hope is only in Jesus Christ. If you want to escape the fiery wrath of God on the last day, that Revelation talks about, then your only hope is to trust that Jesus lived for you the life that you have not lived, the life of perfect truth, that Jesus died for you, the death that your sins deserve, and that Jesus was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins, the complete forgiveness of all of your sins. So, friend, what will you do? Will you receive the Lord Jesus or will you receive God's wrath? Turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus. Hide yourself in him and follow him each day. Brothers and sisters, this is our call. The first application that we must make concerning this song is that we must trust that Jesus was paid the punishment for our sins. We must remember the cross. And as we remember that Jesus bore our punishment in his body on the tree, we must die to deceit and lies and live unto righteousness. We must be those in whom there is no deceit found in our mouths. And as you sojourn, remember that you were once an enemy of God. And now that God in his mercy, through his Son, makes you his friend. Remembering God's justice keeps us trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, which include our lies. You can even now pray this psalm, asking that God will redeem and rescue those who sin against you through slander and deceit. You can pray that God, in His kindness and mercy, will cause your enemies to repent and for their sins to be punished in Christ in His death on the cross. Remembering God's justice helps in a myriad of ways. You can remember God's justice against your sin and ask him to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Children, youth, young people, make this a prayer. Make Psalm 34 verse 13 a prayer, a memory verse. It says this, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. When mom and dad are asking you what happened, tell the truth. Tell the truth. Lies being to snowball, they grow. Lies often require more lies. When you lie, you sear your conscience and it becomes easier to lie again and again. When mom and dad are asking what happened, tell the truth, even if it means, especially if it means that you are confessing what you have done wrong. Remember Psalm 34, 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And remember Proverbs 28, 13, where God says to you, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Those who confess their sin to God and seek him for mercy will find it. Remembering God's justice helps us in other ways too. Remembering God's justice keeps us from taking justice into our own hands. Especially while we wait for the judge to come and make all things right. Remembering God's justice helps us be patient and trust the Lord in this life. Life in a world of lies should lead us to pray for deliverance and should lead us to remember God's justice. But Psalm 120 teaches us another lesson about life in a world of lies too. As we sojourn here, we should love peace and long for paradise. That's the third point. Love, peace, peace. And long for paradise. See if you can spot those themes in the last three verses of Psalm 20. Follow along now as I read Psalm 120 verses 5 to 7. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach. That I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. How does a Christian... Live in a world of lies. You love peace, and you long for paradise. Let's begin there at the end. In verse 7, you see that the psalmist says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And in the Hebrew, this is pretty, pretty fascinating. It's literally, I am peace. It's just that short, I am peace. It's as if the, um, the totality of the psalmist's character is peace, right? Peace is his whole person and persona. Everything he communicates is peace. Everything he seeks to accomplish is oriented at peace. Every word he speaks aims at bringing peace. And yet, at every turn, he faces hostility and hatred. He faces opposition and obstinacy. He faces men who want to wage war against him. How can our minds not run to the Lord Jesus Christ when when thinking about this verse? Jesus came to make peace, didn't he? And wasn't his whole person and persona characterized by peace? He told the warlike waves, peace be still. He told disease-ridden bodies. He set them at peace when he healed them. He put men and women at peace with God when he forgave their sins. Jesus truly is the Prince of Peace. And yet at every turn, he faced hatred and hostility. He faced opposition and obstinacy. When he forgave sins, he was accused of blasphemy. When Jesus taught on the unwavering love of God, the Pharisees tried to test him and trap him. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, when he brought a dead man back to life, the Jewish religious leaders made plans to put him to death. They hired out Judas to betray him. They entertained false witnesses against him. The whole aim of his speaking the good news of the kingdom throughout the course of his ministry, that he has come to make peace between God and man, was met with war. What does this mean for us, for followers of Jesus? In John's Gospel, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's John 15, 18. It means that even though we will be met with war, even though in this world we will have trouble, we should be those who love peace and try to make it. If God has made peace with us by the blood of Jesus' cross, then shouldn't we seek to make peace? Even though Jesus was met by men of war, he always tried to make peace. And we should follow in his way. The scriptures even command us to do so. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Elsewhere, Paul says, live peaceful and quiet lives. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus also said in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 29, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. How can we be peacemakers? Are Are there squabbles in your home, your extended family, your office? Start praying for peace. Start praying for peace. Pray for wisdom about how you might be able to enter in and help bring about reconciliation. Is there hostility between you and another? Are there sins that you need to confess and seek someone's forgiveness for? Maybe peace in part comes through your repentance. Is there forgiveness that you need to extend? Even to someone who hasn't asked for it. Children, you should strive to be peacemakers at home and at school, even among church friends here. Since the psalmist mentions speech here, we should all consider whether or not our words... Tends toward peace. You cannot forget that your tongue has the potential to be a world of fire. This is true in our real relationships in person. And it's also true in any relationships we have on social media. Uh, Do our comments in conversation, personal conversation, or on a post or a platform tend toward peace? Do your remarks seek to sustain peace or score points? Don't like or retweet posts that seek to do that. Don't don't be a part of breaking peace. Followers of Jesus must be for peace. We are certainly commanded to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. And those words in love are an important qualification. Think before you speak. Ponder before you post. Do my words tend toward peace? Lies disrupt peace. And we must be those who love peace and seek to make it. But this psalm teaches us that we should also be those who long for paradise. That's the final, that final world of peace. I think that's the ultimate destination in verses 5 and 6. Do you see in verses 5 and 6 how the psalmist, he laments his location. He calls down a woe upon himself for journeying in Meshach. A place that's a long way from Jerusalem, probably in Asia, minor, what we know today as Turkey, he also tells us that dwelling among the tents of Kedar makes him desperate. Kedar was much likely closer to Jerusalem, um, probably in northern Arabia, but still the point is he's, he's not at his destination. Perhaps these are points along the way of a pilgrim's journey to Jerusalem or different places from where pilgrims make their journeys. Whatever the case may be, this psalmist laments the location. Even if this psalmist is just a stranger passing through, he's been there two times. Long, You you feel that when he's writing this poem, prayer. He wants to be out of the places that hate peace. And in the place where peace can be found. He wants to be in Jerusalem, within her gates. He wants to be at the temple worshiping. Paradise? Perhaps you think that's a bridge too far. Well, uh, the scriptures teach us that Old Testament saints, that they desired a better country than even the promised land of Canaan. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16. They knew that God was preparing for them a city, a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It's Hebrews 11, verse 10. They were longing for paradise, and they knew that Jerusalem, with all of its earthly glory, was really meant to be a pointer to the new and heavenly Jerusalem that the prophets like Isaiah spoke about. What about you? Do you long for paradise? Do you long for the heavenly Jerusalem? Do you want to be within her gates? This world it's incredible. It's amazing and astounding. This country, it's a marvelous gift from our majestic God. But what can compare to being in the immediate presence of Christ, the King of Glory? Do you feel the woes of the psalmist? Do you ever say to Long I have sojourned here. You're not not longing for death, right? but you, you long to be with Christ. Do you ever say, Too long I've sojourned here? Is your is your soul ever tortured and distressed by life on this earth? Do you remember Lot? Do you remember what Peter said about Lot while Lot lived in Sodom? In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, he said that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Are you ever distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked in our time? Do you indulge in the sensual conduct of the wicked in our time? Are you happy in it? Or are you hurrying to get out of it? Peter went on to say that while Lot was living in Sodom, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Does your soul ever feel tormented by the things you see and hear? Are you eager to settle down in Meshech and Kedar? Eager to settle down in Nova or DC? Or are you ready to sojourn home? No, not to Texas or Georgia or Alabama or some other place. Are you ready to sojourn home to Christ, your King? To be with Jesus? How might we cultivate this longing for paradise, for life in the presence of Jesus? Let's remember what Jesus has told us. He told us in John chapter 14, verse 2, that he has gone ahead to prepare a place for his people. And in the very next verse, he said, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Think of the Savior's words. He wants you to be with him. He wants you to be with him. You want to be with him. We need to remember that there's a certain sense in which we don't belong here. And what is more, Jesus, He he wants us to be with Him. We cultivate a longing for paradise with Jesus by meeting with Him now in worship and prayer. As we draw near to Him personally in private and corporate worship, He grows our desires, our hearts to be with Him in His presence. We also grow our longing for paradise by thinking much of the glories of heaven. I can't tell you how much I love Jonathan Edwards' book, Charity and Its Fruits. I have often said that the last chapter of the book is worth the entire price. Uh, Edwards, in that chapter, he describes heaven as a world of love. A world of love. Think about this world of lies in contrast to heaven as a world of love. Listen to how he describes heaven in one section. In the paradise of love where everything is filled with love and everything conspires to promote and kindle love, love shall never grow weary nor decay, but the soul shall more and more rejoice in love forever. You can live in this world of lies when you remember that you are headed to a world of love where your Savior's love outstrips your love. You can live in this world of lies when you remember... That you're headed to a world of love. But you've got to get on the road. You've got to get on the road. And that's what I want us to think about as we conclude. One commentator, he referred to this song of ascent, this first in the songs of ascent, Psalm 120, as the song of the start. I like that because it reminds us where the songs of ascent begin. But I like it for another reason too it reminds us that we need to get started. That we need to get on the road. We need to get going in our pilgrimage to meet with God. Even the conclusion of this psalm, right, it encourages us to get going. Did you notice how the psalm ends with so little resolution? Practically none. Right there, at the end, it ends with a man of peace living in a world of war, just crying out, I, I, I'm a man of peace, but I'm in this world of war. He needs to get out of Meshech. Uh, he, he needs to get out of M- Kedar. He needs to get on the road and get going to Jerusalem. And so do we. How do we live in a world of lies? We pray for deliverance. That God will bring us home to himself. That we remember God's justice. That God's justice against our sins have been satisfied in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give ourselves to making peace because Jesus has made peace with us by the blood of his cross. We live in this world of lies We long for heaven and home because that's where our Savior dwells. This is how we live in a world of lies each new day. We get on the road. We've dwelt here, but we're destined for heaven. Day by day, we meet with Jesus in God's word and prayer. Week by week, we meet with God's people in worship. This is how we walk along the road together. It's how we keep going. Christian, Life in this world of lies can be hard, but you are almost home. You are almost home. Do not give up now. Keep going. Get on the road. Stay on the road. You will soon see Jesus face to face.